she said, you can have it all, but you can't have it at the same time. And I looked at her and I was like, yeah, right, okay, but for you, but not for me, right, because I'm undefeatable. But she was right, and when I had radical acceptance of that concept, my quality of life really improved. From Vertex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Lisa Radosta. Dr. Radosta graduated in the year 2000 from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. After completing an internship in small animal medicine and surgery at Coral Springs Animal Hospital, she worked as a primary care veterinarian for the next two and a half years. She then completed a three-year residency in behavioral medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. During her residency, she was awarded the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists Resident Research Award two years in a row. Dr. Radosta Costa is a contributing author for many chapters of well-known textbooks, including the Handbook of Behavior Problems in the Cat and Dog, Blackwell's Five-Minute Veterinary Consult, and Small Animal Pediatrics. She has published research articles in the Journal of Applied Animal Behavior Science, the Veterinary Journal, and the Journal of Veterinary Behavior, and written review articles for Advances in Small Animal Medicine and Surgery, Compendium, Clinician's Brief, and AHA Newstat. Plus is the section editor for Advances in Small Animal Medicine and Surgery. Dr. Radosta also serves on the Fear Free Advisory Board and the AHA Behavior Management Task Force. Now, just before we jump into today's episode, a quick word from our show sponsor, which is the Vetex Thrive Community. If you are working in practice and clients or colleagues, or in fact anything else is making you miserable, I have good news and bad news. The bad news first is that you're probably at the source of your own problems. The good news is therefore you're also 100% in control of change things and still having an awesome career. What you're missing are some skills and let me tell you they're not clinical. Enter Vetex. Thrive Vetex is a race accredited non-clinical skills training course and community where members receive training, toolkits and mentoring support to develop these skills. Membership is available for a small monthly fee where you can join hundreds of other vets who have changed their careers for the better. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit drdavenickel.com forward slash vetx thrive today now back to the show i thoroughly enjoyed this interview and we dive deep into many subjects including how dr radosta developed an unbreakable mental attitude and considers herself a rule breaker to busting open a few of her favorite behavior myths and much in between so without further ado i give you this my conversation with the unbreakable dr lisa radosta so welcome to another edition of Blunt Dissection. I'm in the speaker ready room, sort of adjunct place. You know, this is a confusing place to be a speaker. I had a meeting here with Dr. Sheila Robertson, two-time guest, Dr. Sheila Robertson. She was in here in what is the actual speaker ready room. And I sat through in the other place, which is apparently not the speaker ready room. No, where it's everyone, the lounge. That's the lounge. It's the lounge. So we've got a plethora of options here. And the, the wonderful voice that you've just heard there is the voice of Dr. Lisa Radosta. So welcome to Blunt Dissection. Thank you for having me. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for ages. Um, lots of people have said, when are you going to get Dr. Lisa on the podcast? You should get her. So <laughs> I felt compelled to, to cajole you into coming on. And, and here you are. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. I think uh, probably a good place for us to just begin the interview, as is always the case, 
actually it's totally not the case is first thing you said when we sat down you lit up when you saw my little notebook here Harry which, Potter Harry Potter so I've got a, a station nine and three quarters Hogwarts Express yeah. note, notepad not because yeah. I like Harry Potter just because my daughter does of course oh of course and perish the thought so you're a big Harry Potter fan massive I've read all the books my whole well my whole family is but my daughter and I mostly read all the books several times and then you have to watch the movies again because then you have to say wait that doesn't match the book and then you have to find the page in the book so we are Total geekoids about Harry Potter. And I have to show you on my phone at some point, I was Bellatrix Lestrange for Halloween. <laughs> so I will try to pull my phone out while I'm talking to you here and you can see. Can you share that so we can put that on the, yes, the, the show notes page? I can. Added I can. value for the show notes page there, guys. There, that's me. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and of brilliant. course, they're Joker fans. They're Joker fans. Yes. I see that. So we went on a girls road trip to London. Yep. And I take my daughter and my mother on the road trip every year we do something right and we had to go actually to london because of benedict cumberbatch oh and yeah sherlock holmes yeah yeah right yeah, yeah, like yeah. we are crazy that's an amazing show oh my god it's an amazing show yeah so anyway we had to take the sherlock holmes tour and go like where he jumped off the top of the hospital like yeah. we had to be there and then we went to do harry potter and it was an all day affair i was just like isabella oh my god and look at that and look at that and look at that it was just I don't know. I mean, how did that come out of a human being's brain? Isn't how did someone think yeah. of that? Like, crazy. Do you, do you have a favorite book? Which one's, which one's your favorite? And did you start, I'll tell you what, I started reading it. I, I missed the, the wave first time around of Harry Potter because I was a big Lord of the Rings fan. And Harry Potter seemed like, oh, this is a bit childish. I'm not going to... I'm not going to get into that. So I was kind of in that age range where it was like, it wasn't quite... I was a bit too old for it. And then I got past that bit and everyone's raving about Harry Potter. And I thought, maybe I made a mistake. And I saw a bit of a movie on TV one Christmas. Event, and I think it was when they were in the woods with Aragog and the spiders. And I thought, actually, that's, that's quite good. I quite <laughs> like that. And then I said to myself, okay, well, I'm not going to go back and watch it until I have a child. And I'm going to read them all to my child. Now, that's my daughter, Marsha. Yeah. And so we're going through them. We're reading them now. So I've read every word and I do all the voices and everything. So. Yeah. Can you do any voices for any oh, So I used to be able to do Professor Snape really well. My daughter's like, always do Professor Snape. So Harry Potter, why is it that you are always in trouble? And she would laugh. And laugh. <laughs> but we, when he died, it's, isn't it interesting how when someone you've loved on the screen dies, you are deeply affected? Because The Deathly Hollows and The Half-Blood Prince are my two favorite books. Right. Right. And... He's such a complex character, mm. right? That the pull between good and evil. And when he died, like we were like, oh man, how could this have happened? He always played such good characters. Just, there, I, I can't think of one. And he was always portrayed as the, the baddie. Yeah. Um, except maybe truly, madly, deeply, which might, I don't know if that was a a good film or not. I can't remember. I think it was blotted out in my mind. But he always played a great... He was like, I mean, he made that Robin Hood Prince of Thieves what right. it was. That was not Kevin Costner, I don't think. That was... How could it ever be Kevin Costner? How could anything ever be Kevin Costner? <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, C movie was a great... I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure how he's still working, honestly. Okay, so love of Harry Potter. So I'm presuming that was that... Was it your children that sort of got you into Harry Potter? Or were you a fan 
before uh, that? No, I was a fan before. It, during my residency, was, and that was long before Isabella, was the first time I read those uh, books. Uh, yeah. And it was just a joy that she loved them as well. Got it. Okay. Now, but I suppose a link from there would be sort of flying around on the Quidditch broomsticks and stuff. But you didn't have a regular route into veterinary medicine or route into veterinary medicine right your background I didn't so you did it like an aviation degree is that yeah, right or I have a bachelor's in aviation business from Embry-Riddle okay and I think that I got persuaded by a person of authority that it would be a good idea to get a degree right that veterinary medicine it's going to be hard to get in mm-hmm. and it might take a while. And why don't you do this thing now? Right. And so I did. And then I worked in business and then I sold and then I managed area of a department store. And the whole time I was like, well, what am I doing? Like, I don't like this. I wanted to go to vet school. Right. So then I went back and got all those additional classes. And yep. I really did. I think it was the first time in my life where I scrambled. Yep. Where I, where I jumped and then hoped that I got my wings on the way down. <laughs> And I went to any university. I would drive three hours to go to that university to pick up one class, to yeah. pick up another class. Yep. Like it was the first time I was like, let's hustle. And in that, order to get... As quickly as the, I could into vet school. points to get into vet school? Right. Oh, man. Right. How did that work? So you were attending different universities? So in South Florida, you can go to FAU, Florida Atlantic. Yep. You can drive to Miami and go to FIU. Okay. So I would find a class. I would, didn't want to wait three semesters for that class to come back around. So I would drive and do whatever I had to do. I ended up in Orlando here where we are today at U of F to pick up as many courses as I could. I just wanted to get there. And I didn't until that moment in my life. Like I had drive or whatever. Yeah. But that was the first hustle moment. Okay. Like this is really, this is really yours to lose. Can you dissect the anatomy? Like how did you arrive at that moment? Because your first degree was what, four years long? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I have other questions about that. Yeah. Like, I'm sure there was things you learned there that probably helped you along yeah. the ways. But in terms of picking up, I want to pick up on that, being, attending different universities. Was that not like an extremely expensive thing to do? Or are they all public this universities you can around? the point where I jumped and hope I got my wings. I just got a bunch of school loans. Okay. And that has been, since that moment, has been my life. Jump. You're either going to crash and you're going to die. <laughs> Or you're going to fly. And and the thing is, I'm constantly rewarded because more often than not, I fly. And I don't think that's about me. Yeah. I think I work really hard. Right. I don't think I'm that smart. Right. But I think I'm a really hard worker. Yeah. And so most of the time I fly. And so I think that works. I'll try that again. Okay. You know? So let's, I'd love to take that apart. First of all, so this, there's going to be three parts to this question. And that is what you're doing sounds not dissimilar to what I do which is just take risks yeah. and and it's like okay if this all falls apart then fine I've yeah. always got a veterinary degree to go back that, to I've always got a job right right you know particularly when we hear this over and over I'm I don't want to be contributing to the narrative I just want to explore the discussion that's out there a bit more fear and the female psyche for want of a better phrase yes. you hear it a lot said like women do not that there's more fear there's more risk there's more First of all, do you feel like that's something that is alive and well or unwell in the profession? Is that a narrative that you see playing out that that girl vets don't want to take the risks? They don't want to do the things that perhaps boy vets do. There's the wage inequality. Like, why does that exist? Your brain clearly doesn't work that way. Did it always not work that way? Like, or, or what forced it to go from here's something that somebody has said, eh, I think you should go this way, get a degree. And you've you know, you've, you've done that, but not necessarily 
being completely engaged to it. How was it then that you pivoted from something to be, I'm all in, I'm going to jump off the cliff and build this aircraft around me? So the characteristic was always there. I was always the one who got into a ton of trouble, tons of trouble when I was young because I I didn't think always through every single decision. Right. And my mother was one of those mothers that always said, and I am that mother too, well, you can do anything. So some mothers might be realists and say, realistically, you're not built to be an Olympic level basketball player. You're five feet tall. That was my mom. She's like, I don't know. Maybe you could be one. Like, let's do it. Right. So I grew up thinking that I was undefeatable. And now I don't use that terminology. I use unbreakable. I just used it yesterday or actually a couple days ago. My resident who's very kind of anxious and worried looked at me and she said, you look tired because she knew the morning was a really kind of crazed morning, Mm -hmm. emotional team members and stuff. And I said, I am tired. I said, but I'm unbreakable. I'm not defeatable. So I'm going to be fine. And that is always my attitude. Expand upon that a little bit more. I love, I love what you just said there. Can you define the two things? What do you see as one and what do you see as the other? Paint the distinction a bit more color there. Between defeatable and breakable. Yeah. Yeah. So why is that important? Because being broken is the foundation right? And if my foundation is strong, it doesn't matter what hits my house, a hurricane or hailstorm or snow. It doesn't matter, right? That, that rhetorical house that is me, if my foundation is strong, if it's not breakable, I simply can't go down. And defeatable feels like I'm in a battle with something Mm -hmm. and I'm not in a battle with anything, right? I'm not fighting anyone because I fought kind of as a young person. That was my attitude was everything is a battle. I'm battling against the fact that I'm a woman. I'm battling against my family structure. Like there is no normal family, first of all, right? (laughs) Oh, we could go there. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) And so it's not a battle for me anymore. It's just that I'm not breakable. Mm. Bad things happen to me. Yep but they can't break me. And yep. when you feel that foundation, your whole frame is different. Yep. Something that would make you curl up in a ball and cry before is something that you have that radical acceptance for, right? I'm sure you've heard that term, where you can radically accept this is happening right now. Yep. Okay, well, that's how that goes. Yes. And now, what will I do to either completely and fully accept that this is happening, Yep. and what will I do to change it? And because there's always that door that's open, what will I do to change it, or change how I feel, or change what happens next? You're not breakable. I love this. Are there things that you, how did you build that foundation? Because it sounds like there's plenty going on there. And I ask that question because you hear the word resilience talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Clearly it's important. Yeah. For me, resilience is one of those things that you can teach the concept of, but it's experiential. You, you become resilient. You don't learn resilience. Mm-hmm. That's right. How have you built that foundation to be that rock? And, you know, are there any examples you're comfortable to share? And they don't have to be calamitous examples, but moments where you can maybe talk us through the mental conversation you have with yourself when something bad or you perceive to be negative is happening that you maintain that that toughness to work through that right so my dad italian catholic sicilian he made us tough yeah and he didn't have to be first generation american he was third or fourth but that sicilian streak and there was like he had which i my sister and i view it differently he had a crying towel yeah so if you start crying he says here's your crying towel you got two minutes when you're done you hand the towel back to me 
It's a perfectly fine way to parent, probably. My sister remembers it horribly. I barely remember it, but that was the attitude was, you know, pull it together now. Right. You're three and you stubbed your toe. That's lovely. Pull it together. Get up. So he gave us that, right? Of course. And then um, I feel like, like for example, my godchild is 16. She's yep. my niece, but I'm also her godmother. Yeah. Okay. So... I was in my residency when she was born. I flew down to be there. I was there when she was born. And I only love my child more than I love this child. Like, right. I don't know. It's just, you're there. It's your sister's baby. Yeah. And so I had always wanted that I would be that super fantastic aunt and that she would come to me with the things she could never talk to her mother about her. That did not happen. We have a good relationship, but that didn't happen. So recently... What happened was her boyfriend is first real boyfriend. Yep. And her boyfriend thinks I don't like him, which is not true. I'm just not cuddly. Right. I'm just not like, oh, I'm so happy you're a member of the family. I'm like, hey, how are you? So anyway, it got back to me through my mother that that happened. So I texted my niece and I said, hey, let's talk on the phone. And she's 16, so it took her several days to get back to me. And, and during that time, I was stressed. Mm. It's like, I don't want her to think that I don't like her boyfriend. And so I sat for a second and I said, I mean, it really was stressing me. I sat for a second and I said, okay, what is this really about? This is really about that for the past 16 years, you have never had the relationship that you actually wanted to have. It's good, but it's not what you wanted because all stress in my life, at least comes from hoping something will be different Mm. than it is right now. Yeah. Right. Thinking that it would be or will be different than what you are experiencing. So once I radically accepted that I had a different relationship the stress dissipated. I had to accept that. And then I thought, well, what should I do? Should I try to change our relationship entirely? Should I maintain what a wonderful relationship we have and accept that that's really cool? What should I do? So I decided to accept what we have because I would have to change my niece in (laughs) order to have something different. And that's not realistic, right? So that was just something that happened just a couple weeks ago. But once you sit and you accept that your expectation is different than what the world has delivered to you and that you right now cannot change that. And then you look at all the ways that you could change it and what's realistic. It's just easy. Do you have the negative voice plays in your head sometimes? Imposter syndrome? I try not to. I almost bristle a little bit when I hear that word. Why? Because... I feel like for most of us, it's not a syndrome. It's a, a thing we experience yeah. when we're doing something new and we're not good enough. And yeah. I think, therefore, it's probably something that's really, really normal. I like, we all is. experience it. So how can it be a syndrome? I think where it maybe becomes a syndrome is where we focus on that so much and internalize that as our identity that then that becomes a problem. Right. So that's what I speak to with that sort of negative voice that sometimes says, no, you can't do that. Don't jump off that cliff and build that plane around you. Yeah. You're never going to be a vet. You're not good enough. Do do you have have that going on? And if so, again, how do you take corrective action if indeed you do? And did you always? Like, where were the points of awareness in your life where you start right. to go, huh, uh, there could be a different way here? Yeah, so I have that voice. I think everyone has that voice. And I wish I could remember the name of the Australian TED Talk speaker who made me really understand that I should embrace that voice. I don't remember his name. He say, 
He's a businessman, and he did a TED Talk, and he's Australian, that's all I remember. So yes, I, that voice when I was young was a voice I had to defeat, because everything was about fighting, because that's my family life. Yeah. So I would just defeat that. I would just say, no, that's not happening today, and I'm yep. going to do what I want to do. Yep. Now, especially since hearing that podcast where he spoke, I embrace it, because what he said was happening is actually what I had been doing, yep. and I didn't know it. He described his career and how he was an imposter. Like half the time he didn't know what the heck he was doing, right? <laughs> and he's this now super powerful guy. And he said, I don't reject the imposter syndrome, that voice. He said, I embrace it because every time that I thought I couldn't do it, it drove me to do it. Mm. It drove me to say, well, what does it take to do that thing? Right. And I can't, I, that voice is still there but I know so much about myself. I mean, I'm 50. Right. I know so much about myself that when I hear that voice, I go, you're wrong. Yeah. That is not true. Yeah. And then I also say, if you want it to be true, then maybe you should study harder. Like I wanted to be an extraordinary speaker. I've always had, thank God, the ability to speak well, like, you know, to educate. Yeah. But I wanted to be, I want to be a keynote speaker. Yeah. That's really what I want now. And I've been a keynote speaker at one conference, but I want to be one at a big conference. So, my mind might say, "What well, you don't have what Mary Gardner, our friend, has, right? She's so incredible, right? right? So you don't have that. You don't have what Andy Rourke has. Like, your mind might say that, but then I thought, but what do they have? Well, I'll write down all the things that I see in Mary. Yep. Maybe I can do those things. Yep. Maybe I can be that. Yep. And you just set a plan and you go for it. Yep. Is there a time where something didn't work? I'm just talking about, you know being defeated, but being able to get back up or being, you know, it sounds like you're quite chippy. That's a yeah. word that one of my other guests used, and, and maybe that's a bit of a Celtic word. But Garrett Turley said he said he grew up chippy. He's from Northern Ireland, you know. He always felt he went to Cambridge University as a you know Northern Irish kid, you know, not your traditional yeah. route into education for sure. I always felt like it's something to prove that sort of chippiness. Mm. Is that is that there in your sort of past? Is that always, a driver for you? Always something to prove. And there's still something to prove now. So yeah. when I go to these, because uh, now I get the honor of being on these executive councils where you advise CEOs of whatever, right? Yeah. And institutes and yada, yada advisory boards. Yep. And when they say, introduce yourself, I always say, I'm a mom. Yep. That's the first thing I say. And all the men are like, wah, wah, right? Like, <laughs> I'm a mom and I'm a veterinary behaviorist. Yeah. And I make myself do that first, even though it's uncomfortable because I feel like I am here to prove something. I'm here to prove I can be a good mom. Yep. I can be successful. Yep. I can have good quality of life, work balance. Yep. I can do those things and I am a mom first and I don't have to act like a typical man mm -hmm. in corporate business in order to be successful. Right. I don't have to look like that. I don't have to be like that and that's okay. So yes, I have a big chip on my shoulder. I don't know if that's the meaning of chippy, but I do have a big chip on my shoulder of like, I can be that. Like, you know, just sometimes when we put women, even now, okay. So there's a gentleman who is very well respected and I adore him. Yep. And we were at a conference together and there were two like reps, farmer reps setting up their little table. And he said something that was clearly sexist. Yep. And, and I'm really working around men so much. Most men are clueless in my experience, when they say something so stupid like that. They're not trying to be yep. anything, but it just comes out of their mouth. Yep. So I knew that about him, because I knew him, I knew his family. Yep. But I, I have a choice on that split second, because I'm beneath him on the totem pole. Yep. 
And so I said, you cannot say that to women nowadays. And the farmer rep who was down at the bottom, right, right, of this little totem pole looked at me and I'm like, you cannot say that. And he goes, I'm sorry. And that's what I taught my daughter. I said, you will be, you will feel that you are experiencing sexual harassment at some point. Yep. You have to fight right then. Yeah. You have to fight then. I was getting into a minivan. This is way like lower in my career. So I'm really now at that point, I'm meeting people and yep. thinking, behave, behave, don't say anything crazy, right? Because you want to get the next job or whatever. Yeah. So I get into this minivan with all these people and we're going and big wigs. And then we stopped to pick up another person and the minivan's getting pretty full. <laughs> and so this guy in the back who I know well, who's a very important person says, Lisa can sit on my lap. Right, right. Totally. So I looked at him in front of all these people who I hoped would give me a job one day. And I said, do I look like the kind of person that's going to sit on your lap? And he goes, no, you do not. Yeah. And I said, okay. And that's what I taught my daughter. You stand up right then. You don't have to go off on him, but you fight then. And then other people hear what has been said. You have witnesses. Right. And it changes the culture just a little it bit. It changes the time. culture. I will not be bullied. I will not be pushed around. I heard... Yeah, it's funny. It's it's in some ways, you know. I look around. What what you know about the veterinary profession is, it's the least diverse profession out there. Is that true? I believe it's wow. true. No, I do not have data on that, but it is very very white, oh, yeah. middle class mm. because it's so damn expensive to get anywhere. Yeah, and I think if we walked around the halls in Orlando here, we would see that. Now that's not. I'm not criticizing that i'm not making comment on that that's observational there are you know we now have a, a profession that at entry level certainly is sort of 80 20 gender bias tilted towards female not quite so through the the full spectrum but the positions of invert commas speech quotes power still largely held by male characters so far as i can see yeah and then we have these sort of bubbling conversations about inbuilt sexism, inbuilt gender, pay gap being an example of gender differences and then just little comments like that. I, I witnessed another one which I I know, again I know the person, I know there was no great intent behind it but it was it was a conversation that somebody started said hey, you know, and they were asked how can I help you? And the response was I'm looking for this, this, and I would really like to know the answer to what is it women want. Now, this is said in front of yeah. other people publicly. Yeah. And and I was like, oh, you know, I wouldn't have said that. That's no. that's really not something I would have said. It, right. it, it grated a little bit. Right. Well, what was wonderful was there was another person behind in the queue came around and saw the back of my T-shirt. Now, I don't just wear the same t-shirt for a whole conference. <laughs> like I've got, you know, I've got like three blonde section t-shirts. But she came behind me and she said, I know what they don't want. They do not want to be blunt dissected. And said that and I thought, bam, that was such a good put down. I just yeah. shut it down completely. But I agree, it's, 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 us, it's perhaps us being more mindful of these are not really just throwaway things when it becomes right. so prevalent that it's a cultural thing that it's kind of, and I think, you know, you see that you could say the same thing has been true about race that's been through about so many things. Right. But it does matter and it does show up when maybe there's a different question there. Do you have any opinions on why well, first of all, gender pay gap exists. I think that I think mm -hmm. that's that's a real thing. Yeah. Why does that exist? 
you know, that's a sociology question for someone at, at like a university or something. Right. I think it exists for just personally, my observations, number one, yep. this is a patriarchal society. Yep. And so as long as that is perpetuated, and I think it, in 30 years, it will be really different because it's really different now than it was yep. 30 years ago. Yeah. So in a patriarchal society, you are going to reinforce or reward those who look like you. Right. right okay. Right, that's number right. one. Number two. The thing is that employers may not want to pay women well. They may not want to hire women. They're going to go out on pregnancy leave. That's expensive, frankly. I'm telling you, as an employer, that is a really expensive three months or six months or whatever yep. you give them. Yep. And so they may not want that. And number three, women still to this day do not know their worth. It is a problem. So I was asked by a university that I care about to go there for a day. Yep. And I said and help them implement fear free which is like a passion right yep. of mine and so i emailed back and i said i'll absolutely go this is what it will cost you and i 10 years ago or 5 years ago maybe even i would have been like oh it's a university should i do it for free no i put it out there they didn't have me go mm. that's okay yep right because i know what i'm worth i know that when i go there i will deliver a great product I know that I will do my research, I'll deliver it well, I'll shake hands, I'll kiss babies, I'll do what has to be done. Right. Right, and I'm worth something. Right. You have to be comfortable to stay at home. You have to be comfortable that they might say no and you might stay at home. Right. And that some of that comes with where you are in your career. Because if I don't get the next job, I will be okay. I have a lovely practice, I have a great team, I won't lose income, really, in the long term. It sounds, there's almost a mindset, there's a, you know, the, the concept of scarcity and abundance there. It's that belief that right. something else will come my way because of this. Right. Because I am now in control of what comes my way. Um, on your journey, like, are there any tips or advice, like, would you give any, or what advice would you give to any of your colleagues listening out there who weren't having to negotiate something, say it's, it's a it's a pay raise, it's a new contract, it's a new job, they're going to a new employer, it's for some extra vacation time, whatever it is that they're facing negotiation. What have you found that's worked or helped you to maintain a, to get a, I don't want to say a better result because I, I don't want to color negotiations where somebody should win and somebody should lose, but to get a fairer result, to yeah. get something that's more palatable so, that you feel you're worth. Yeah, you want to go in with value so if I was a crappy speaker right. and I went in and said, I want this much a day, that's not going to work. So if you are the lowest producer in your practice, you're a GP, you're the lowest producer and you go in and ask for more days off, I don't care what sex you are, what color you are, you're not getting it, right? Right. If you come in as my top producer, knowing full well that a top producing vet could go somewhere else, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to keep you here. So number yep. one, show value. You can't be lazy and go in and ask for more. Yep. That is not how life works. Yep. So show value, work hard. Number two, make a reasonable demand. Yep. I had a technician who came to me and asked for uh, quite a large raise. And I thanked her because I felt like she feels like she can come to me. A lot of people will just quit jobs, right? So right. she feels like she can come to me. But then I was honest and I would say, well, I said to her, I adore you. But if you want that raise, you need to do 
these things. Mm -hmm. So she came to me and had a big ask, but she didn't have a big value behind that ask. The truth is what we did was she did those things and she's making exactly what she wanted within about 45 days. Okay. She made those changes. So you were able to then say, listen, okay, we can do that, but this is what I need back. This is the added value for me. So go away and think about that. Right. And, and she's a, she sounds like she's kind of a rock star. So She is a rock star. But also, I will tell you, one of the things I work hard on that I'm not good at is empathy for human beings. Empathy for animals, uh, forget it. It's like natural. Right. Empathy for people, because I have kind of a just get up and do it here's attitude. Here's your crying towel. Right. Here's your crying <laughs> towel. Two things, two sidebar questions come out of that then. And this, this actually comes back to something you said earlier. So I'm starting to see a little bit of a theme emerging here. When you first did your your first degree, you almost sounded like you were kind of drifting on somebody else's current at that point. And then you knew you had this other thing and finally you got zoned in. You jumped off the cliff and that brought necessity. Now, it sounds like you have an understanding of what's required from getting to point A to point B. That sounds like that was kind of missing for your, your technician. Yeah. Who sounds like she's got all the hustle. She does. But she, it sounds like she was lacking something. And and what it sounded like to me in that conversation you had was you helped to articulate her purpose. Yeah. And then Makes it sound a lot better than what I actually thought I did. Articulate your purpose. I, I right, like but, that. But then you, you also, you you mapped out the action steps for her. And, and one of the things that I've sort of noticed is that when people, people that are successful, and I've seen this in conversation after conversation, have set a very clearly defined goal, objective, whatever you want to call it, and then they have just moved heaven and earth to make that happen. Right. And I've I've seen that over and, and over and over. That seems to be one of the key things in success. Yeah. Can you speak to that? I mean, that, that sounds a little bit like that's what you did for your career. Did you have a process? Like when you were like, okay, I'm going to be a vet. You said you hustle. Can you define a little bit more about hustle and then perhaps just extend that into this, your technician's hustle list? Yeah. Like yeah. That, that we made up a new term now. Yeah. Your hustle list, <laughs> your get shit done thing. Your get shit done list. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I knew when the turning point was, but hustle to me means working hard, making happen what you want to have happen. Yep. And I think it probably also means disregard for the rules okay because you can't jump off the cliff if you're worried about the rules the sign that says don't jump off this cliff okay it's right there in front of you i'm a rule breaker with the gift thank you mom of overconfidence okay right i'm pretty sure it's going to work out the way i planned and i can understand now how to problem solve yep and that's really hustling is deciding and and really truly deciding what it is you want and then making that happen. And the way that I do that is I look to the people who are really successful and I go, what are they doing? Because I don't have to reinvent the wheel, which is what you think when you're, when I thought when I was young. Right. I have to come up with it. No, look at those people who are doing it really well and do it like them. Right. You know, with your own twist. So modeling somebody else's behavior and then just going, yeah. let's take that and see if it works. Right. You've got to get dented up a little bit when you've got that attitude to risk as well. Right. Um, Yeah. What's one of your favorite dents? Like, you know, and one of my guests, Chris Brogan, came up with this phrase, and I I love this, love this. Chris is is a brilliant marketeer, amazing writer, several-time New York best-selling author, but incredibly genuine, sensitive, warm human being who also just gives a shit about the people around him. Right. 
and he came up with this mental health is a is a big deal and he's quite open talking on the podcast about his struggles with mental health and he came up he, he used this friend phrase dented to describe all of our lives yeah. and I, I was like the comparison with that that lovely japanese technique of mending bowls where they use gold so as it becomes so unique and beautiful it's not perfect though yeah do you have a favorite dent that mm. you'd care to share and, and one that and again that you were able to work around how did you work around and pass that and embrace that to be something beautiful for you yeah, that's a really good question. So I can remember lots of lows. I'm not sure if those are dense as you mean them, but I, I have gotten out of balance yeah. a lot where I just feel lost. And it's usually because I have poured too much of my energy into one compartment hmm. and, and thus not paid enough energy, enough time and energy to the other compartment. Whenever that happens to me, I can tell you my process is to take a pencil, the kind you sharpen with a pencil sharpener, yep. not a mechanical kind. Yep and a piece of paper and write down what's important. What is really important and then how will I get there? And when you say compartments, do you mean different life compartments? So business, finance, spiritual, war, uh, right. you know, family. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And every time I was out, every time I was at the bottom, like really physically not well, mentally not well. Yep. It was always because my family was lower on the, that compartment huh. had been pushed down always yep. because you know once you have a child there is no one else right right there's no one else and even at 12 when she really she doesn't really want to be with me that much being around her <laughs> i'm having heart palpitations <laughs> of that thought mine's seven and i'm like no. no i mean she's and my friend said because i was like oh and she doesn't want to hug me she said you know what from the beginning you have worked to create an independent child She's independent. You should be happy. Right, right. That she's not clingy. I feel you know? like this, that sentence of our conversation, I'm just going to burn that in my brain. Yeah, be <laughs> grateful for that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I, I, don't know, I don't know how I respond to dented. Because dented implies that I was perfect, and now I'm hmm. not perfect. Mm. That's my gut reaction to it. And perfect doesn't exist. Yeah. It simply doesn't exist. So... What I told a young woman yesterday, I met her three days ago, and I watched her speak in front of a group. She has a really fairly high up on the algorithm job with an international corporation. And she put herself down the first time, and I thought, what the hell's wrong with Why is she, like, mm. I, I'm in this job, I know about this, but I'm not a veterinarian or a veterinarian. I was like, well, whatever. So then I, I'm at the industry dinner, and I hear her say it again, and I was like, Mm. No, you did not. So I approached her yesterday and I was like, listen to me. You're good enough. You don't know me. I don't know you. But I've heard you twice put yourself down. I said, I look around this table. I know all these people on this corporate table here and they're missing. I know every single one of them, they're all missing something. Right. Do you understand? You are good enough. Right. And she's like, thank you. And I said, okay, then I'm going to go back to my... <laughs> <laughs> Which French 75 this? drink that I had to go to the big girl bar to get because they weren't serving good enough booze at the bar. <laughs> so, but you know what I'm saying? Like do, yeah. you hit bottom sometimes you mm. do, but you're not, I don't know. I like dented. I just think you are, yep. you are this thing yep. and it's a cool thing what you are yep. and everybody's different. And for that author that you just talked about for him, that works yep. and that's cool too. Yeah. Like whatever works. Yeah. Perhaps we're all just vessels waiting to be filled and whatever we're filled with is what we are and that's good enough. It's good enough. Mm. That's the thing. I'm not striving to be something I, I'm not. That's super, in, super insightful. So I want to just jump off and, and perhaps more into 
some of the projects you're working on now. So obviously you, your career has gone down the route of behaviour. So perhaps the first thing, I, I want to talk about, uh, obviously I want to talk about your journey into Fear Free and, and your passion for that. But maybe just speak to behaviour. Behaviour seems like there's certain categories or things that are out there. And I would say behaviour, dentistry, nutrition. Nutrition. That are, like to me, they're the big three that nobody talks about. But right. they're the big three that would make the most profound differences to animal and veterinarian And life. I would add that the top two questions asked in the exam room yep. are nutrition, yep. behavior. Yep. So as a general practitioner, you're walking into an exam room, the top two things you're going to be asked about are the things that you were taught the least about in veterinary school. That is insanity. And I think that our college should take, ACVB should take partial responsibility. I do think, and I've said it many times in many public places, it's partially our fault for presenting behavior as this like weird thing where it takes three hours to do an appointment and you have to know the special diagnosis that we gave it. Like, no, it's not like that at all. So I don't know how we get back in vet schools. Like six vet schools, seven vet schools have behavior. That's a joke. Yeah. We are saying this is not important. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the message. When I graduated, and I, I don't know if you were always interested in behavior, but, but for me, I was not interested in behavior. I, I, we had one day of dentistry training right. I couldn't even tell you how many days of behavior training they were not examinable so, so half the attention? class didn't show up yeah I missed I mean I dentistry is the thing I've done the most in my career now right so but I missed the morning session because I'd gone out to nightclub the night before <laughs> and I might had a little bit of a sore head I made it in for the practical session in the afternoon and I thought oh my god this is really cool I like this and I like the guy who's teaching it and that was the start of my interest. I nearly missed it. Nearly yeah. missed it. And it's a disease with 100% morbidity rate. That's right. And huge impacts on health. Behavior now is getting... Actually, kudos to the work that you and, and Marty and many others have done with Fear Free. I presented a session yesterday morning on uh, animal ethics and animal welfare and one of the things we asked was how many people have completed some form of training, like low-stress, fear-free, cat-friendly practice training of some kind, how many hadn't, and how many were in the process. And I was really interested to see the answer to this question on the poll. And the answer was that I think it was it was very close to 42 43% had completed it, with another 10% doing it, which means over 50% of practices okay. in North America based on and it was a small poll in a yeah. in a small room in a conference so it's hardly representative i'm sure it was a big room but, i'm sure you but, had like a ballroom <laughs> it was eight in the morning so <laughs> but i was very impressed at that level of penetration yeah. for what hasn't been going that long in the grand scheme of things so four years four and a half years epic kudos to you guys for that i'm super pleased that my practice in london is we're working on being the first one in the UK to complete that training. Oh my so that's, God, that's that'd be cool. awesome. Yeah, I know my team are buzzed, pumped about that. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of going with the question is, you know, so we've got this situation. I, I, I can, when, I'm, when I agitate a little bit, the specialists in practice, they're like, well, we've got our own thing. We've got our own agendas and there's just no space in the curriculum for it. A lot of it. ego. Loads of ego. Oh yeah. So I guess, how does this show up? You mentioned there's a couple of questions that you know, the most common question you're going to get asked. For the veterinarians that listen in, what are those questions? What, what are the common questions they're going to encounter? And then maybe what would be some useful answers? Like in the practical sense, 
what are the common behavioral things that show up? And I know we could talk for hours on this subject yeah. alone, but maybe just the most useful practical things for our colleagues that might help them in, in that exam room. Yeah, so I think what will help them run the appointment, which is a little deviation from your question, sure. is to have technicians take proper history. Yep. The veterinarian in the U.S., I don't know about in England, but they have 20 minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes 30. Yep. If they're a high producer, they might negotiate a 45-minute appointment, yep. but they've still got to produce. Yep. That's just the nature of veterinary medicine yep. until insurance is different, yep. where the client doesn't have to pay first, right? Yep. So utilizing our technicians and using very short questionnaires. So the veterinarian is not hand on the doorknob, my dog bit my grandchild. Yep. We need to avoid that because that causes anxiety for the veterinarian. Yep. And it makes them a- run late. And risk as well, right? Because right. what can they reasonably do in that moment? It doesn't expose them to great risk of Right. Uh, Number one litigation. problem in dogs, aggression, right? Yep. And aggression is to me... One of our simplest answers, don't do that anymore. Yep. It's like so simple. My dog barks and lunges at people on the leash. Okay, so you're going to walk your dog and just put it in the backyard. I don't have a backyard. Fine, you're going to walk him at times where you don't see people outside. Well, I live in London and there's always someone on the street. Right. Okay, so we're going to medicate your dog for walks. Like it's a very simple answer. I want my dog to like people. That's a complex answer. <laughs> I want my dog to not do that is not so complex because you can almost always avoid aggression. Okay. Almost always you can stand in the room and say, don't do these things. We're going to look for any sign of pain. We're going to look for neurologic disease, GI disease. We're going to run the right lab work. We're going to work your dog up. But for now, if your dog bit your grandkid, your dog may never be with your grandkid. Oh, my dog's going to cry. In everyone's life, a little rain must fall. Here's some medication. You're going to put your dog in a room. Your dog can board with me when your grandkids come here. Your dog go, likes to go to daycare. You have a don't do that solution and you get a lot of pushback, right? I don't want to do that. Right now, I need to help you, your grandkids stay safe and I need to work your dog up yep. because pain and discomfort can easily be a part of this dog biting your grandchild. Right, that little cocker spaniel that has the, the, ear, red, infection. the ear infection or the bad hips. Of course, right? Yep. And so you just say, don't do that. Yep. And if you need to medicate, you do. And then you decide, maybe after they leave, once your day is done and you've seen your 40 rooms or whatever you're going to see that day, yep. you decide, am I going to refer this case? Am I going to do a telemedicine consult, which we do? Or am I going to send to, am I going to manage the meds? Because I feel really confident about meds. And yep. I'm going to try to make the diagnosis. And I'm going to refer out to a professional dog trainer yep. for the behavior mod. So you have to just decide where you want to go. Yep. For cats, most common problem Urinating outside the litter box, super, super simple. Needs to be worked up. I don't care what the owner says. I don't care that she says her cat's not constipated. I don't care that she says the fact that you are looking at the cat's teeth and he has stomatitis has nothing to do with urination outside the box. If she was a vet, she wouldn't be here in your office. We have cured cats of defecating outside the box by sending them to a veterinary dentist to have some teeth pulled. We just don't know. You know, when you feel sick, you do weird things. Right. Right. So you're always going to do that. Yeah, dogs bite, cat, cats, cats remove themselves and poop and pee in exactly. places. So then we just change the environment to the environment the cat likes. On our website for FEBS, our FEBS website, we have cat litter box standards. Like you could just send a client What's there. What's FEBS? That's, our, that's my behavior service. Yep. So it's flvetbehavior.com is the actual website. Got it. And if you go to articles, you go to pet parents articles, there's all kinds of cat articles, all kinds of dog articles. They're free. They're just meant for people all over the world to get the help that they need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so those would be the two biggies, I think. What are the myths? What are the common myths that are put? You know, I was having a conversation with a nutritionist 
I've, I've made it sort of my interest to sort of learn more about these areas I neglected. It's sort of like my yeah. penance for you know <laughs> being that ego person earlier in my career. So I was hanging out and I'd done a wonderful speaking tour with Marge Chandler, who's a nutritionist. Yeah, over in, I know her. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she great? She's on the Purina Institute Advisory Council right. with me. And she is, and when we planned our trip to London, that's who I emailed. Oh, like, can yeah. I fly into Gatwick? Like, how yeah. does this work? And yep. she helped me figure it out. She is yep. so generous. And, and I, I don't know how to say this. She's an average person. She's a regular person. She totally is. Down yeah. to earth. Heaps uh, of fun. Yes. I have to say, sidebar, and, and Marge, if you're listening, I know you won't mind me saying this at all. Like, she's the worst person to ask for travel advice <laughs> at all. For somebody who's traveled <laughs> so far. Really? She, she helped attracts, me. <laughs> I, I know, but I would have been worried to get on the aircraft because every time, every speaker that we've had, something goes horribly wrong with Marge's travel schedule. Like, some freak thing happens on the railway or... It's just, oh it's just hilarious. It's become a funny. running joke. So, so I'm glad you made it. <laughs> I did. I made it. And I'd love to get Sorry for outing your travel disasters. Yeah, but. I did just what she said. I took the Gatwick Express to Victoria Station. Like it was lovely. Right, perfect. right, right. Yes. Well, I live really close to Gatwick Airport. So you were lucky to get a nice, easy Gatwick Express <laughs> in the town because it's the most badly named what? service in really? the world. Oh my oh, that god, you're destroying so my images of my fantastic trip. Got, no, it's it's good. <laughs> it, it gets we, we Brits like to knock our public transport heaps. So one of the things I Marge Marge and I were doing this talk and she was doing a presentation on common nutrition myths and how to address them with clients, which was really eye opening for me. Are there common behavior myths that you yeah. see cropping up over and over again that we're not addressing very well? And if so, what are they and how should we address yeah. those? One of the common behavior myths that I used to, uh, I might have called five years ago, the alpha myth. I'm going to call the it's not all about you myth. Right. Because, you know, if my dog's misbehaving, it must be about he doesn't respect me. Or yep. just like, it's not about you. Yep. Your dog is behaving that way because something internal to him is motivating him to behave that way. Right. So the idea that there's a respect component to fear, anxiety, and stress is absurd it's unfounded there's no science behind it that's kind of myth number one number two is that myth perpetuated in the sort of mainstream behavior it is like i I have a name popping in my head of somebody very prominent in the behavior training are we not allowed to say names i don't know i'm I'm okay with saying names yeah so it's season one right Right. yeah that's this this is Right. What's popping up my brain for right. right and we wrong. had Victoria Stillwell, who yep. was from across the pond, and she did a great job. And her show is no longer, she's put her energy into training, dog yep. training professionals, yep. and writing books. And she's changing the world in that way, which is yep. fantastic. Yep. But yes, I think that's the thing with nutritionists, and I feel this kindred spirit with them. Anyone can be a nutritionist. Yes. Anyone can be a behaviorist. Anyone yep. can put out their shingle. And that is frightening because we have the lives of animals like teetering in the balance of that advice. Absolutely. And and there is a distrust in the US right now of science. Yep. And so on our Facebook page, I, I, I outline articles periodically, scientific articles, so that people can see this is what we know now. Yep. Right? This is the thing. And maybe it disproves something I thought was true before. That's okay. Yep. That's all right. You know, to speak to that for a second, and this is something that Marge and I Marge puts up a slide on her screen. It's the evidence-based pyramid, which is yeah. great. And then she says this really funny line. And at the bottom of the pyramid is sort of anecdote. Yeah. And, you know, she says, the plural anecdote is not data, yeah. which which I love. Now, and I sort of then challenged her and I said, well, Marge, I, I get that. But if you look at what's happening in the mainstream media just now, it's anecdote that is winning. 
and it's oh, yeah. and it's you know fake news fake news or yeah. you just make up whatever story but they're stories yeah and i said to marge wouldn't it be great if because what we're really good at doing is talking in facts and sciencey wiency terms yeah and what we generally suck at doing are telling stories and how do we take the fact and put it into a story that can people swallow and digest a little bit more i sort of digress away Back to yeah, your point but on I think this. we have to do that because yep. I don't want the only way that my the people around me get science is from the mainstream media. So yep. if I can take it and say, well, this is what we learned, this is what we didn't learn, and put that out there, then maybe I can put you know better information out there. Yeah, so. yeah. What other myths are out there then? So there's the alpha, and uh, what else is out there that's a, a common misconception? One of the things that. I tell to clients really on a regular basis, it's clients come in with a huge amount of guilt. Yeah. And I think we as parents of human children do as well, yeah. right? That it must be something, our fault, which is different than it's about my relationship with you, the dog yeah. or the cat, yes. but more that I did this. Yeah. And really every day I have to say, you probably didn't. So the big myth is that behavior is moldable like play-doh and that you get a blob and you can make that blob look like anything you want. Behavior is genetic. Yep. In some studies, it has a low heritability. In some studies, it's 87% heritability for certain behavior traits. Yep. It's genetic. What, what would be some of those examples? I'm guessing sort of retrieving behavior would be an example of something retrieving like that. Aggression. aggression. So certain coat colors and uh, American Cocker Spaniels are linked yep. to aggression. Labrador retrievers have been studied and there have been studies on both ends. One showing that certain coat colors are linked to aggression then a recent one showing that it they were not. So there's, in cats, we know that the black cats have a gene that is a more, codes for a calmer behavior pattern than those orange cats. Yep. We know that calico cats are feisty. This is not anecdotal, yeah. right? So we know that no. some... And Other genes code for behavior. Is that a trait as well? well because for I calicos, look at calicos, definitely. I think right. of chestnut mares. I think of calico cats. But then I think of ginger toms and the, the such lovely. Like if you say true. to any vet, what cat would you want? They're like, ginger tom. Yeah. Like they're, they're all, they always seem to be nice. I, I've true. had two black cats and they've both been total lunatics. <laughs> like I learned everything <laughs> I know about cats, not through classes, but through handling those two crazy animals. Like, so, Genes are, well, you know, you're a doctor, so yeah. but genes are what you're given, and right. then the environment turns those on and off. Right, right, right. And they were both, like, typical vet, damaged, abandoned. That's what I have now, yep. yeah. That's yep. my cat. Yep, yep. Okay, so um, moving on to, I want to I talk about Fear Free a little bit. Um, this has obviously been a huge part of your recent career. Give us a sort of, I've not really had anybody on to speak about Fear Free yet, so kind of give us the, the backstory. How did that all kind of come together for anybody, and particularly for people outside of North America, where it really isn't as well known? Speak to what it is and why it matters. So Fear Free is, of course, four years ago I would have called it something else because we were very worried about hitting the bullet points and educating people. But now that I've lived it, it's an attitude. Yeah. It's creating an environment where the emotional health of your veterinary healthcare team, the patient and the pet parent are all considered and the approach to people is and their pets and your team members is considerate. It's an environment where communication is accepted, mm -hmm. where it's encouraged and where every member of the team is actually listened to. It's really an environment and an attitude more than anything. And it's important because 
if we look at just the numbers from cats, let's yeah. say, right, 87% of cats will try to jump off the exam table or will show aggression, yeah. okay? 58% of cats are still stressed by their owner's report when they get home. Yeah. That means the panic attack has lasted from carrier, car, entire vet visits. We're really going now to an hour, hour and a half, yep. and all the way home and past when they come out of the carrier. Yep. So if I told you as a veterinarian, and this is what's so absurd to me, why people aren't running in droves to be on board. I mean, there are like 40 or 50,000 certified, but the thing is, if I told you that there was a disease that affected 87% of cats, you'd be like, teach me about it, sell me that drug, I'm gonna put it in my pharmacy, yada right, yada, right. give me the brochures, I'm gonna educate my technicians, but somehow this is not important. And on top of that, it's not just cats, it's dogs too. The dog numbers are in the 70s. They're close, they're not in 80s, but they're in the 70s. But here's the thing, your medicine is severely affected, right? So there are many studies now, they're all accumulating, looking at the changes in heart rate, yep. in blood pressure, yep. in respiratory rate, and in body temperature. Yep. So I guess I wonder some days, why am I taking your heart rate? I'm listening for murmurs, I'm listening for changes, but why do I bother? Because 135 in a box is absurd, right? Is he ill? No, right. he's ill neurochemically here in his head, right? We almost have the ranges wrong for cats, don't we? A cat's resting heart rate at home isn't anywhere near what we're listening to in point. a vet clinic. And forget blood pressure. You're monitoring a CKD cat, really, with blood pressure you're taking with a Doppler and you're listening? You've scared the life out of him. It's pointless. Mm. Right, so we have to change those things to practice the best medicine. Yep. And there's no one who became a vet that doesn't want to practice the bet the best medicine. I mean, you may be stuck somewhere where you're not, but you want to. Yeah, yeah. What are and again, I'm I'm just thinking because obviously we're slightly time limited today, and I know the the, the courses. You know, there is a myriad of courses that there's can be so taken many. on the websites. We'll, yeah. we'll maybe check in on that in a second. But what would be if you were to say, the, what are the biggest no-nos mm -hmm. that are the, also the most common things that are, you know, they're everyday occurrences and practices that if we eliminated those, would move the needle a bit for our patients. And, and I'm just yeah. thinking also of the flip side of, you know, a, a, an emotionally healthier, happier animal also presents less of a risk to the team as well, right? That's right. So it's better for the business That's also. Right. What would some examples of those things be? Easy things we could do that would move the needle would be to number one, recognize when an animal is stressed and you're gonna need education on that. Vets and vet techs will need education, right? Yep. That's number one. Number two, I would say, is dropping the ego. So the old me, the undefeatable me, when a technician came out of the room, because I've been a vet since 2000, so a while now, right? When they came out of the room and they didn't get the blood, the first thing I thought was, come on, I could have gotten that blood because I could stick any vein and I always get the blood, right? It was that kind of like, I'm so good and you must have done something wrong, okay? So the, the fear-free attitude is different. You train your team, you trust your team. Now when a technician comes out of there and says to me, I didn't get the blood, I feel 100% confident she advocated for the animal and I know the next step is for me to prescribe drugs. Okay. Like it's very simple, it's not stressful. So we yep. have to stop with, it has to be done today. Does the heartworm test have to be done today? Really, is he going to die if he leaves today? I don't think so. There are not that many things that must be done today. And if they do, we can distract the animal enough usually, or we can just get an injection in there, yep. sedate, the, sedate animal. the animal. So get her done attitude, that's a Southern, Southeast 
at you know kind of phrase get her done has just got to go by the wayside yeah yeah what drugs would you then typically prescribe let's say you had a cat that were rather fractious and it's like no we're all just going to get eaten here the cat's freaking out it, we don't want to use it as a pincushion what would plan step b be for that yes. in your your place so what i want vets to do is think about what the animal looks like. So you just described fractious. I'm yep. assuming the animal's hissing, yep. swatting, maybe yep. even lunging at me yep. at, toward the front of the cage, maybe if he's still in a carrier. Yep. Then they all want them to think about what they want. And don't be silly. I want the cat to not do that. No, right. like describe. I want the cat to be still. I want him to lunge less. What does that? Okay, so your choices for cats are going to be gabapentin, trazodone, acepromazine. Okay. Acepromazine is not a dirty word. Okay. We can use it if we need to. You also have the option of benzos, alprazolam, not diazepam. Okay. Now, so for that cat, I want the cat to be less scared, quieter, and more friendly. That's a gabapentin answer. Yep. Okay. Yep. So then if it's an average size cat, it's going home with a hundred milligram capsules. Mm -hmm. Here is one of the keys to success is that when the owner gives that medication for the next visit, it has to be given three hours prior to her appointment time mm. because you have to get gabapentin or any head drug, I'm going to call them, on board before the stress level mounts okay. because it's a neurochemical fight in the brain. Right. And if norepinephrine and epinephrine are bound in the body, you could give a ton of drugs and you won't get a calm cat, but you will get a cat who's sedated for the rest of the day at home. Right? Okay. So that cat might need 200 milligrams of gabapentin. Yep. Trazodone is a sedation answer. I know that it's an antidepressant, but the outcome is sedation. Yep. And cats, NC State has produced a lot of good trazodone studies in cats. And one of the studies showed us that cats on trazodone travel better, yep. but they're not easier to examine. Okay, So maybe I have a cat who I think I could give 100 milligrams of gabapentin and maybe just a little bit, maybe just 25 milligrams or 12 and a half milligrams of trazodone. He sleeps on the way here. He's happier and friendlier. Yep. And what you can't forget about, you cannot forget about is serenia. So motion sickness or on dancetron, like whatever mm. you use in your practice. Yes. Motion sickness, in my experience, is a big part of what presents to me in the clinic as a freaked out pet. Hmm. If you're nauseated, yep. then you, you are already anxious. With you. you don't want people touching you. Yep. So whatever anti-emetic you use in your practice, that needs to go home with your anti-anxiety meds. That's interesting. Now, just picking up, you mentioned ACP is not dirty words, and it's it's certainly become that. So, you know, we, we for fireworks, you know, in the UK, we have yeah. Guy Fox night, and it just goes crazy for a month either side of that. Yeah. So people would prescribe ACP when I graduated and then we were all taught oh, don't do that because all it does is alleviate yeah. their or it removes their coping strategy because they're just basically monged out completely that's my <laughs> technical yeah. word <laughs> so I was you know when you said that I thought okay that's interesting and, and you clearly have a counter point to that yeah. so um, when's it contextually okay and it, and do we know something new about ACP that, that hey. I'm not up to date with acepromazine is a sedative we just need to love it for what it can give us yep. and not expect it to be something it can't. Yep. It's not an anxiolytic. Yep. It makes animals sleep. Sometimes I do want an animal to sleep. Yep. Sometimes that's part of my plan for them. If they are anxious or fearful, I have to relieve that anxiety and fear. So let's say that I have a fireworks dog and yep. I say, well, I'm going to put diazepam on that situation. All right. I'm going to relieve the anxiety and fear and I'm going to increase appetite. That's great. He's going to eat out of his food toys. I'm going to get him into a walk-in closet or a bathroom. I'm going to make a safe space. 
and I've relieved that anxiety and fear, but I really would just like him to sleep a little bit. I can give him a quarter mig per kick of acepromazine orally. This is not injectable doses, yep. oral. Yep. On top of my diazepam at the same time, an hour before fireworks, and I get a sleepy dog who's a little bit hungry and a lot less fearful. Right. So the place for it is as a topper. It's like whipped cream, right? It's you, You're going to put it on there if you want it, but you don't have to have it for it to be a good bowl of ice cream. And it adds to what's there. It's not your sole meal. Got it. Got it. Okay, so just a, a quick question. Um, I know you are very, you know, you're also, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of sort of <laughs> spheres orbiting in your Got your a universe. lot of pots in the air. Right, yeah. right. There's a lot of strings to your bow. But um, you, telemedicine is something that you've become involved in. Yeah. So just a really two-part question on that. One is, where do you see advantage for practices you know, in adopting telemedicine? Where are, the, where are the places they can really bring value to themselves and to their customers? Like, is it friend or foe, I guess, is the, yeah. the basis for that question. And how are you using telemedicine to expand your business? Yeah, so there's two, uh, two ways to answer that. So one is what we do. I would say about 25% to 30% of our recheck appointments, you can't, by law, you can't have a new appointment be a telemedicine appointment. 25 to 30% easily of our recheck appointments are telemedicine. And we do that because it's more convenient for the client. Their pets are scared anyway. Why should they get in the car? Mm -hmm. We have certain behavior disorders that we only treat with telemedicine. So separation anxiety, they come in, they see the doctor. They have to come in to see the doctor. But the treatment... To be able to have that VCPR and also prescribe Of course, and we run blood work and we do all kinds of stuff. So then, but the technician who treats the case, who implements the plan that the doctors write, we tell the client up front in that first appointment, all of your technician appointments will be telemed because this happens in your house. Yep. And not only that, because lots of things happen in the house that you can work on outside the house in a different location, it's that the separation from the owner really needs to be worked on in the house. The owner needs to walk out her front door and we need to see that. But if the technician is in the house, the dog will not be alone. Yep. So the, there are some advantages for some disorders where using telemedicine is actually preferred and we like to use it in the practice just for convenience. Yep. And I would strongly, and, and we charge the same. This is a big question. Like, what do you charge? We charge the same as if they were standing in front of us because yep. our workload is the same. Right, right. right. Then f- we offer the telemedicine consult because I would travel all over the world and there'd be these people, well, a veterinary behaviorist is not within you know eight hours of me. Right. And I'm like, dude, you know, you need help. So the telemedicine is doctor to doctor. And I, I actually went on the IDEX, if I'm allowed to say, website, sure. as if I was going to put in a consult with an internist. And I looked at what they had, and I tried to fashion it as close to that as I could. Because what I want is for vets to believe, because it's true, that veterinary behavior is like dermatology. It's like internal medicine. It's really not that different. So the form is short. They have to submit videos. Because if they give me nothing to read, I'm not telepathic, for God's sake. i got to see a video, right? And then what they get is down and dirty, just like you get from IDEX. Yep. So I'm hoping that this will expand, and maybe other veterinary behaviorists will... Do it too. Yep. Right. So then people can get help no matter where you are. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're definitely in the sounds like in the friend the friend camp yeah. for telemedicine. Yeah. Just a lot of sort of distrust or lack of sort of awareness. You know, our profession is so crippled by it being quite technophobic at times. Yeah. If it's not equipment that we can use in the practice, but some of these other digital technologies, telemedicine, online pharmacy, actually e- e-commerce generally, seem you know, social media use seem a little bit we're, we're always 
slow to adopt some of these things. Yeah. Are you seeing that starting to pick up? I am. I think you're going to die business-wise if you don't, unless you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, unless you're really rural, you're going to have to be competitive and you can't be if you don't have technology on your side. You can't turn the rooms over. Yeah. You know, you can't get people in the seats. No. Okay, so just um, keeping an eye on the clock here. And uh, I know we've, we've both got, got other projects on at this very busy VMX meeting. So I'm going to move over just, uh, we'll wind up with a, a couple of short form questions if that's okay. okay. Now you can give however long an answer you like. I have a problem with that. I'll try to be short. I'll be brief. <laughs> I already am short. I'll try to be brief. We both have that, that <laughs> issue going on, right? Okay, if you could change one thing more than anything else in veterinary medicine, what would you change and why? Oh, I would change people's uh, emotional awareness of their patients like yeah i think it's relatively self-explanatory the why on that as well like. yeah yeah i mean if that is i mean that's my passion that is my life's work yep. if i can get vets to just say that dog's scared we're not going to do that we're going to send home these meds yep. yes absolutely one side question on that is because i wonder if the challenge people would have then is that we talked about expectation management right. before we start this interview and um, how does a client, how do you communicate that decision to not take the action that maybe the client's been like, oh, I'm going to build up for this, I'm going to build up for this, and then it's not happening right. and keep them on board? Yeah, that, that is a really good question because I get that question after lectures a lot. Number one, you need to have integration from the front of the house to the back of the house. If you've got one doctor standing as an island trying to do this, he or she's going to fail. Right? She, she needs support. So the CCRs prep the client for what might happen. You manage expectations in that way. And sometimes you are in the room with the client who says, get it done. I really need the nail trim. Yep. In that case, you really have, you have a decision. You can say, okay, no problem. I can completely sedate your dog today. That's going to be $150 and I'll get that nail trim done. Yep. Or I can send you home with these meds that are $25 and you can come back in two weeks and then the nail trim will stay $20. But it you know, the way it always is. Yep. Does that work for you? Yeah. Which would you prefer? Which would you prefer? You're in control. You're driving. I'll be happy yep. to sedate your dog today for that $20 nail trim. Excellent. Now, yeah, that's one of my favorite questions. What was the best piece of advice you've ever been given or uh, you've ever been given or you've ever given somebody and it worked out? Oh, man, that I've ever been given. Debbie Horowitz, who is a veterinary behaviorist, and I even fought it when she said it. She said, I want to tell you, because she's the mother of three or four grown mm -hmm. kids, of course. She said, you can have it all, but you can't have it at the same time. And I looked at her and I was like, yeah, right. Okay, but for you, but not for me, right? Because I'm undefeatable. But she was right. And when I had radical acceptance of that concept, my quality of life really improved. I had to let go of some of the dreams that I had had I had to completely let them go and grieve for them and then my quality of life improved but she was right as a mom she was right there's a lot that says be patient in that answer right which I have a hard time that, that's my challenge <laughs> I feel you I feel you what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given go to Embry-Riddle and get a bachelor's in, in business <laughs> Thank you, Dad. I wondered Thank if you. you were going to say that. Do you have a favorite book uh, that you've read in the last sort of 12 months or, or in memory beyond that that's been very impactful on your life or career? In my life, I would say there's two books. And I don't know like how, if I, I'm just going to say what they are. Uh, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, 
which is a very good book that I read when Isabella was young that helped me understand the culture behind the princess culture. And the other one, if I'm allowed to say, is called Girls and Sex. It's hard to read, but as a parent of a daughter, it's the same author. You just, you have to know what they're going through to be able to counsel them. You just have to know. I feel like you're now moving into counseling me. As uh, that. This is, this is, that Girls and Sex book, that is very hard for me to read. I had to put it down several times because I didn't realize just the pressure on girls. Mm. And I just want to be that mom who gets it. Yeah. And, you know. I'm going to grudgingly, but knowingly store that one in the back burner. Your daughter might not, never I'm like not ready princesses. To. <laughs> I'm not you know, ready well, you have real princesses in England. <laughs> we got one last night. <laughs> I know, I know. It's all in the news. Our American princess just uh, left. <laughs> and she took a prince with her. She did, yeah. This exactly. is wild. Crazy times. Yeah. If you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation from vet school, what would that piece of advice be? You could pop out on graduation day and say, Lisa, quick word in your ear. Everything is not... A fight. All right, and we will we will wind up with this one. You're a social media user to an extent. I am. I'm trying to learn more about the social media okay. business. Do you, do you yes. have a preferred weapon of choice um, in which which type of? Well, so like right now it's Facebook, any, but when Facebook. I get more educated, it'll be Instagram. Okay, so let's imagine you can you can send a message on let's say Facebook, and it's going to pop up in all of our feeds, guaranteed without paying Mark Zuckerberg a, p- a penny. What message would you say? And that's, that's to your colleagues around the veterinary profession. What, what would that message be? So not to the general public, to my colleagues. Oh, you could do both if you want. Yeah, to the general public, I would say your animals have the right to say no. And to my veterinary healthcare team family all over the world, I would say behavior is not a choice. It that's is neurochemistry. It's neurochemistry. It's medicine. Right. Right. So let's stop calling it a choice. And it has real impacts and real behavior changes that then make decision-making for everything else we do. Yes, and you don't have to be a marshmallow. I am not a marshmallow. And I believe that dogs and cats should have more, and cows and horses should have more joyful lives. You can be tough and still care. That's awesome. So Lisa, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really good conversation. Uh, You know, lived up to all the billing like i'm super excited that we got the chance to have this but i want to shout out there i mean there's so many more things that i could ask you about time time, always at my back i hear timed timed winged chariot hurrying near and unfortunately that chariot doth approach so i think let's wind up and say so you you've got your florida veterinary behavior service right and you you do consulting with clients across the world right so So yeah if you're struggling and you wish to reach out and have a wonderful behaviorist expert um, batting on your team. What's the web address they should go to for that? FLVetBehavior.com FLVetBehavior.com We will link that up in the show notes as well. Uh, You published a book with Dr. Marty Becker as well, so From Fearful to Fear Free. Yeah. Assuming available at all bookstores. On Amazon. Yeah, everywhere, yeah. Everywhere. I really encourage you guys to go out and learn more about that. Do yourself a favor. Do your patients a favor. Do your business a favor. It is one of those genuinely no-brain concepts to execute and you know as I think for my non-North American audience sometimes we look into the the big goldfish bowl of of America and think you guys are all crazy 
Um, we are. But you know, we think about you. We think you're all so smart. <laughs> we think you're all the smartest people <laughs> on earth. I expect I stand up as a great example of that. <laughs> is not true? But, you know, we're all great. But this is such a wonderful idea. And it's not the soft fluffies. It, it just is something that will change your practice. So I, I encourage you to go learn a lot more about whether it's fear-free or low stress or whatever it is you do, something to improve the mental, uh, emotional well-being of your patients because that will just have great knock-on effect. And we didn't get a chance to talk about your dog nerds. Dog nerds. Go to therealdognerds.com and you can learn more about our distance learning company. It's directed directly at clients. And I write the treatment plans and there's videos and there's handouts and it's start to finish really good treatment. So if you know your meds as the vet, you can send the clients there and they can get their treatment. They can work with a dog trainer during or not. It's supported by two dog trainers. So we're trying to deliver, we're trying to fulfill our mission statement and deliver great behavioral medical care to everyone all over the world. We're getting there. You're working it from all the angles. Maybe that's a topic for around two another time. Um, yeah, and we listen. have to talk about what happened when I went to the London Tower the next time. Oh, we listen. <laughs> so many stories, so enough time. Alas, we must alight our broomsticks and fly off to our, our next <laughs> lessons in the, the crazy castle of Hogwarts that is VMX. Lisa, thank you so much for the thank work you, you do educating us in the profession about behaviour. Thank you for your time coming on the podcast and um, good luck with your future endeavours. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of Blunt Dissection. Massive thanks to Dr. Radosta. Wasn't she a great guest? Please shout her out and show her some love on the socials. Thank you to you for listening as well. And don't forget the epic back catalogue of previous shows with rich, detailed discussions with some really phenomenal people in veterinary medicine. And don't forget to shout out the show sponsor today and go check out VetX Thrive. That's it from me. So without further ado, I shall let you get on with your day. Until next time on Blunt Dissection, from me, Dr. Dave Nichol, be safe, be well, and be happy.